A starter for ten. Why do you think I made so much ploy then about Israel as a land and the continuation of his covenant with Israel, even though the original covenant has been seemingly superseded? Why do you think I made a point of that? God is faithful to keep his promises. He doesn't lie. God is faithful and keeps his promises. In other words, he doesn't forget his original covenant just because he's had more children. He doesn't forget his firstborn. I think that is something which Paul takes up with extreme clarity in Romans chapter 11, when he says, does, does this mean that Israel has fallen so far as to be beyond recovery? And then he gives a wonderful answer, by no means. And Romans 11 contains the crux of the duality of God's purposes for the whole world in which there's no advantage in being a Gentile over a Jew and no advantage in being a Jew over a Gentile. But at the same time, the fact is that we've only become Christians today because of Israel's unfaithfulness. So what will it mean for the future of the world when Israel is grafted back into the vine, as he will do, as it's very clear in verse 32, I think it is, of Romans 11. Terribly important chapter. His plans haven't changed. And just the fact that there's been a bit of a time gap doesn't disprove anything. You see, Jesus had said very clearly this great suffering that was going to come on the Israel nation because they hadn't heeded the hour of their visitation. It's so important to heed what God says when he says it to us. He means what he says. Now, mercifully, the Christian community in Jerusalem, warned by Jesus back in his dying words as he walked on the way to Golgotha when he said, you know, what was going to come on the nation and to take heed when you see Jerusalem surrounded by, take heed and flee to the hills and pray you're not pregnant at the time. Well, in AD 66, Gallus, who was the Roman legate to Syria, came to invest, to besiege Jerusalem because the Jews had been making a huge nuisance of themselves with a massive rebellion and the Romans had to do something. Gallus came and then he withdrew again. And the Christian community, in their wisdom, heeded specific prophecies that were given by local churches at that time that they were to flee then. And they did, to a place called Pella, beyond the Jordan. And they set up a real Christian centre that developed there in Pella. From there, Christians went out to Antioch, and then later from there to Ephesus. But praise God, as Eusebius, the church historian, explains it all, praise God that they did heed that prophecy and go. They could have done what people had done in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, when if you remember Nebuchadnezzar came, he surrounded Jerusalem and then he went away again and the Jews were foolish enough to think that the danger was over and Jeremiah was saying don't trust it, don't trust it. You know, it, Jerusalem is going to be taken. This time there'll be no Isaiah, there'll be no Hezekiah in tandem together to rescue the nation. And the Christians of AD 66 didn't say, oh, God will send another Judas Maccabees to rescue us as he has done in the past. No, they had the sense to flee. And four years later, Vespasian's son, General Titus, came and the sack of that city of Jerusalem was one of the worst in the history of the world, probably along with the destruction of Warsaw, the ghetto there. 
Something like one million Jews died in the Jewish-Roman War and another 90,000 were um, taken away captive. It was a terrible, terrible moment of destruction, but almost no Christians perished because they'd heeded the word of God to flee. And I want to pray that each one of us will be alert to the word of God. Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary said to anybody who'd listen, whatever he says, do it. And that's the word that we need to heed. And I love the fact, as I said at the start, that heaven is so close. As Linda referred to, that we've had a challenging year. We've had two of our parents, our two of our remaining four died. So all four, sorry, are now safely garnered with the Lord. Ross had a very long time, sort of like 18 months, of intensely caring for her mum. It was a physically demanding, but a spiritually uplifting time that her mother came much closer to the Lord during that time. It was very costly in terms of looking after. But when she finally passed to the Lord that evening, Ross had a deep sense of the glory of the Lord overshadowing. And then shortly after that, three or four days later, she had a wonderful sense, a vision of her mum with her dad, Ross's dad, reunited arms round each other and the Lord's arms around them. And then shortly after that, she felt their touch on her back. Now you know what it's like when you come away from a meeting and said, I received a real touch from the Lord in that meeting. We all know what that's like and it's lovely. But this touch lasted for many, many, many days, weeks even. And she would often say, I can still feel it. That is a touch from heaven. This is the place where the Lord is, Bethel. Isn't that lovely? And we barely recovered from that and were still very much mopping up with everything that needed to do with the estate afterwards, as it were, when my own father was taken critically ill. And again, an extremely challenging time of looking after him. And he passed to the Lord um, after five weeks of very intense uh, time indeed. So it has been a, a traumatising time, but again, there's been a lot of heavenly interchange in that. I couldn't begin to tell you how much. Heaven is close. And praise God for that. Any other questions or issues people would like to raise? Robert, um, when the Lord talks about the end times in the Gospel, he seems to say particularly two things. One is, stay awake. Mm -hmm. And the other is to know how to interpret the times. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just wondering, particularly with Advent and with you, with mm -hmm. all the, the words we've had about thinking about heaven and I will mm -hmm. take my watch on the ramparts and so on, mm -hmm. all the words we've had recently. Mm -hmm. is, are there particular ways we can respond to thinking about the future? You know, the future, but now as well. Yeah. Apart from just staying awake, which all Christians yeah. have to do. You know, are there particular things we can do and pray about? Yeah, that's a lovely question, very much talking about the Lord's time scales in all of this. Do you know, I love in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, the five wise, the five foolish. And it says, doesn't it, it talks about them, the fact that they were there trimming their wicks. And that's a very interesting verb, it's cosmeo in um, 
Greek, which of course, from which we derive cosmetic. It means to beautify, to adorn, or to prepare. And this wasn't a random, obscure image that Jesus was using, as so often, in fact almost always, he was using local issues that were entirely familiar to everybody. Because in ancient Palestine, what would happen is that you would have a wedding was the one thing that a rabbi, a trainee rabbi, was allowed to leave his studies for. Everyone marches to the drumbeat of a wedding. Everybody would stop and come along to it. But there was one catch. The bridegroom wouldn't let everybody know when it was going to happen. He made his way to the bride's house, but it could be over a period of a few days or a week. And only the very selected friends would be invited inside. And in technically, he had to send a herald before him up the streets just before he came. But it would often be at a very obscure time in the middle of the night. So this wasn't a random thing that Jesus was saying at all. It was something that people genuinely had the chance of not being ready for. And so this matter of keeping awake is actually vital. I very deliberately gave that example, you know, then about people in uh, AD 66 who had to be awake to what the Lord was saying. There was um, a time during the Second World War when the Gestapo were launching raids on uh, Christians in Copenhagen in Denmark. And their Christians were warned by the Lord that it was going to happen. And they made sure they were out of town that day. It's very practical that we actually do need to listen to what the Lord is saying. And I know that as a community, you are good at chronicling the words the Lord gives you. And it's important to jot them down and to review them and then to tally them one against another to see how they line up. And sometimes you'll find that words from long distant past, you'll suddenly say, it's as though God is now activating them. Now is the time to act on it. Because you see, what God very often does is he gives first a call, but then a commission. And if we act or try to act on the call, we can actually make quite a mess of things. Moses got the burden to try to help the Hebrew leaders at the age of 40, got involved, got hunted out of town as a murderer, a failure of mission. But the commission came many years later, when he was 80. Too late, one would have said. That was the right time. That was the moment when God actually was calling him to do something about it. So I would say to you, study the words that God's given you and ask him to give you a broad understanding of whether they are primarily the call or the commission. And if it's the time for the commission, that's the time when it will be confirmed by different strands. And that's the time to actually step out on that particular word. It's like that with so many things. With some things you don't get lots of chance to wait on the Lord and to reflect on it. You've got to do it there and then. You're in a shop, you see a great bargain, you either go with your gut and get it or you miss it because it's gone when you come back. But with anything that's like course changing for your ministry or your life, your career, God will enjoy you spending time with him, praying about it, and he will love to give confirmatory strands. I call it triangulating or tallying 
that he loves to confirm things in different ways, by different people sometimes, by different words. So you've lined it up and you say, yeah, I'm pretty confident now, this really is the Lord's way of doing it. And then, at that point, the Lord very often works very swiftly and speedily. It's felt as though it's been nothing, 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 great big desert. Just like there had been a 400 year lull before John the Baptist, the herald, came into sight, paving the way for the bridegroom. There'd been a 400 year lapse when the word of God had been absent from the nation. No prominent, no prominent prophet had arisen during that time. But God hadn't gone to sleep. He was watching over his word. And when the time was right, he launched it again. I remember years ago when as a young Christian, I said, Lord, I'd love to go out. This was in the days of the Soviet Empire, very much, of course. I had a friend who was going out to Hungary, and I said, I'd love to go too, Lord. And the Lord said, just pray to have a ministry when you go. But when I went, three decades later, it wasn't to Hungary at all, it was to East Germany and developed a very, very fruitful link in ministry there and saw God do beautiful things. So God got me into the bracket area, the target area, but the specifics come in slightly differently from how you'd imagined it would happen. So Paul has a great vision, uh, a, a man in Macedonia saying, come over here, we need your help. So he abandons his plan to go off to Asia Minor or whatever it was. Instead, he goes over to Macedonia and who does he meet and leads of the Lord who becomes the catapult and catalytic converter for the whole of the region, Lydia. It wasn't a man at all. But I think if God had said to Paul, I've got a woman over there for you to meet, <laughs> his scruples might have got in the way. So the vision was right. Just a few, you know, retracking of the tyres that has to happen to his thinking as he goes along. As he goes along, because he's on the right path, everything becomes clear. So I think the answer is, write it down what the Lord says. You remember in Habakkuk, the Lord said, write it down on a tablet. Mm. And we've got Apple tablets these days to help us to write down on. And sometimes the revelation is so blindingly clear that, you know, it came to um, John on the island of Patmos that he saw Jesus in his power and beauty so much that it actually caused him to do a double take. Is that really Jesus? He's so different because he's in his resurrected state now. And he had to do a double take, but he had to write it down and share it. Whereas Paul went slightly the opposite way in Corinthians. He said, I know a man who, no question at all, he was speaking about himself, who was caught up into heaven, but about such things we won't talk. And he was a lot more discreet about it. And we were talking over the tea table about this, that sometimes the Lord is absolutely expecting us, like John, to share the detail of the calling with others. And other times, like Mary, we ponder in our hearts, or on other occasions when Jesus actually precludes us, vetoes us from speaking out loud at all, as he did to many of the people who he'd healed. and he said, not now, wrong time, don't do it. And of course, they went off and did it, but that's another story. So I think in the first place, write down, and then be expecting God to work it out in unexpected ways. You may have got the broad spectrum of what you expected, but then be alert to him doing it a slightly different way. Do you remember I prayed right at the start, I referred back to the words of that hymn, the chorus, that new wine. 
about carrying the new flames that God gives you, which means laying down certain flames. And the reason I was picking that up again then, when I started, was because I know that when you've reached a certain vintage in the Lord and have seen the Lord work this way and that way, that's how the Lord does it, actually. At which point you've got every possible chance of missing it when God does it a different way. And he comes in a different way because he doesn't like to replicate himself and not to keep you on your toes so you don't become the great big know-all. But quite seriously, many of the people who were used by God greatly in one move of God become the chief opponents of the new move because that's not the way God does it. This is the way that he does it. And then you move into Pharisee mode, legalistic mode. Well, that is really not a good place to be and we have inner Pharisees that rise up with our prejudices and sort of object and I'm so glad that the Lord whispered the Holy Spirit whispered to Peter don't be afraid to go with this person hmm. it hadn't been for that in Acts chapter 10 he wouldn't have met with Cornelius and the miracle of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles that we talked of earlier wouldn't have happened. That is end time stuff today. God is going to pour out his spirit in extraordinary ways. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And his basic principles remain exactly the same so that Paul would be entirely comfortable and at our ease in our midst today. But at the same time, he's got fresh dimensions, fresh cutting edge to bring. And we must always be open to that. Anything else? In, in Matthew, where Jesus talks about what he'll look for when he comes again, um, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and so on, do you think that people sometimes get overzealous in good works and concentrate on that to the exclusion of perhaps prayer and spiritual battle? Um, I just find that there can be a bit of burnout when you try and do everything that you might think that God is going to be looking for when Jesus comes again. I just recognise that people get confused. What should I be doing? Okay, that's a very broad set of categories. You've, you've, you've surrounded that question, in, Linda. And if I could start at the opposite ends, that some people are not too socially minded, but too spiritually minded. And so you find that there have always been people who want to neatly tie up in graphs and charts every detail of the end times. You know, so that we've got the chart of this, the chart of that, and this is what's going to happen. And we are not dealing in the Bible with charts like you get from the Admiralty, where every reef and every lighthouse is marked. And it's deliberately not done that way, because we have to keep on our toes and be looking to the Lord. And the answer to the other is exactly that. We have to be looking to the Lord. Should I be involved primarily in those social type of actions? Or should I be being more spiritual? Or even better, can I be all of them? But not trying to do everything. Whatever he says to you, do it. And we find out, you know, we plunge ourselves as young Christians into doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that, doing a that. It's perfect, but we should do, because we're gaining a broad experience. 
But as time goes on, the Lord hones it down and focuses us in. So the call of God becomes more narrow so that we go down a particular route and his anointing is specifically in that. And do you remember I prayed earlier that we'd know when the seasons were changing? Do you remember I prayed that? That's really important because we can still be trying to be what God had called us to be 20 years ago, but actually he's moved us on. So he called me first and foremost to be his evangelist. And that was great. But then he called me to be his prophet to the church. And then I found something extraordinary happened, that whenever I preached the gospel to congregations, nothing happened. But they did want to go deeper with the Lord. So when I started preaching about going deeper with the Lord and the call to intercession that he was giving me, then I found most extraordinarily that people were getting converted again. But I wasn't preaching evangelistically. So the seasons had shifted and the Lord was moving me on. And later, he called me more towards the contemplative and to being with him. And that's the season I'm primarily in now. And it's got many dimensions to it. And sharing what's on his heart. That was always the core of all the callings, was to share what was on the Father's heart. That's what matters, Linda, is to be absolutely clear where the Lord is causing you to put your primary burden because there are many things we could do and do well and because we're doing them for the Lord there will always be blessing in that but it's not quite the same as putting our major thrust into the thing God's given us as our top priority and out of courtesy and deference to others we can hold back on our main calling and a lot of loss happens because of that and that concept of there being a lot of loss is something which again I feel the church has lost sight of this is a slightly different point but I wanted to bring it out tonight it's from 1 Corinthians 3 when Paul is saying very clearly there is a day of reckoning the second coming is a day of immense joy and welcome to see Christ as he is but it's also a day of reckoning when we are judged for every careless word that we have spoken. And here we find a big difference between a judgment on believers and a judgment on non-believers. For us, it's a refining. For non-Christians, it's the shock of their lives. But it can be a big shock for believers too, because how we are has been noted by the Lord and where somebody has been constantly disparaging other believers and been putting effectively words of cursing on other people, then it comes firmly into the category that Paul teaches on in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says you've been building on a foundation of hay, wood and stubble and it will be burnt up and the person will suffer loss, great loss. They will still be saved, but only as by coming through the flames. And that again is one of the great truths of scripture, which I believe the enemy has tried to hush up. So that we think, I'm okay, you're okay. And we're reciting psychobabble rather than the word of God. It's important that we keep that perspective very, very firmly in mind. So that our hearts are repentant. It's, the, it's he who is contrite in spirit, who trembles at his word, who's open to his word. That's the one to whom the Lord can share his whispers and his heart and say, I'm really pleased with you because you're doing your very best 
to say sorry when you've got things wrong, to go back to the fork in the road where you took wrong turnings and put it right, to say sorry for the things that you've said that have hurt, and to put things right in this world so we don't suffer loss in the next world where perhaps certain things that we could have enjoyed in eternity we won't because we simply disqualified ourselves from them. doesn't mean we won't be saved. But nowhere in Scripture does it teach that heaven is egalitarian. There will be greater rewards for those who have been most faithful, just as many times Jesus warned their punishment will be worse because... You remember, it's not an egalitarian in that sense at all. The Lord sees, notes and honours duly. Sorry, you said Christians, in fact they fled in AD 66 and yes. got out of the... Yeah, it's the a and uh, just thinking as a nation today, what we're going through right now, I'm sure you will understand where we're coming from. As you mentioned about the ten virgins and uh, trimming their wicks, etc. Um, to me, what's going through my mind is that I can see a lot of judgment against the, um, this European Union. So if I just read a little something, uh, in terms of what we're going through, we're actually going through a time. Yeah, the whole evening without Brexit, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> I won't use that word, I won't use that word. We're living through a titanic civilizational clash between two fundamental worldviews. The first seeks to defend Western nation based on its discrete and particular history, language, religion, culture and ethical values drawn from the Hebrew Bible and Christianity, a national identity expressed through laws passed by a democratically elected and sovereign parliament. The second wants to destroy all that and replace it by a new world order under which Western nation is superseded by transnational laws and institutions. National borders are erased and biblical morality replaced by ideology, specifically identity politics, moral relativism and multiculturalism. And it's all about, it's focusing, it is intimately connected to hatred of Israel, Judaism and the Jewish people. And what I can see, forgive me, from what you've just said earlier, I can see that the praying a lot of the praying church has been praying about escaping from the EU, literally going back 40 years. I haven't been praying it for that long, but it has been going back that long because they can see the whole uh, thing about uh, the, you know, the one new man doing it his way, getting rid of God's biblical values. And I can see judgment against that. And there's visions that people have had, in um, one particular one of a galleon with all this... Uh, tentacles attached to it and uh, God cutting those tentacles allowing yes, Gary to go in his vision, direction yes. yeah. yeah and and that's a vision uh, that was subsequently shown a vision of Britain escaping from the EU and being a blessing from outside mm. can you give me a bit of guidance on that can you see where I'm going and how mm. does that fit into things right Stop watching the way calendars out do you know the founding of the EU was a beautiful thing they were Christians who came together to found it. They genuinely wanted to have peace yes. where there had been nationalism mm -hmm. of the worst kind. And without going into charting the ways, we've ended up basically where you've just described. That unquestionably, you know, from the French side have come all the power of anti-clerical forces, man-made secularism for want of a better word, and many other things that have left us wide open to very clever demonic forces. 
I'd thought about sharing, I've got some notes on it, I might have shared tonight about what the, how the propaganda department of hell works in particular generations to try to trick us and to trap us. But in a funny way, you've outlined some of them by a, by a back route there. And it is happening right across the board. One has to be brutally honest here and say, and are we better in the way we are as a nation? Are we truly putting the Lord first? I'm always reminded of Jesus's, you know, I, I, do you remember what I was saying just now, and you probably wonder why I was so adamant about the Gospels not being egalitarian. Well, Jesus said absolutely clearly, and Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, are you better? Will you be lifted up to glory? No. You will be cast down, and the judgment on you will be worse, less bearable than it was on Sodom. A direct comparison. We spend our time generally warning against comparisonitis and not wanting to compare ourselves with others. As Paul said, masterly understatement, it's unwise to do so. But Jesus is in a place where he can make comparisons, and he says that's the worst of all when that happens there because, and he goes on to explain. Now we've got. In other words, judgment is according to opportunity. And we've got a problem here because we've had so many opportunities in this land. Churches on every church street corner and the incredible sacrifices whereby it was made possible to have the Bible in the vernacular for us in this language. A great blessing. What have we done with it? We are finely poised as a nation. We are a country living by spin at the moment. I have been so grieved in spirit hearing the promises of the um, main two candidates in the last few weeks. It's, you know, not quite, in so many words, said, I promise a free ride to the moon for every person who votes for us, <laughs> but it's precious close to it. A&E times will be reduced to five-minute waiting times. No thought of back chat of how will we raise up that many more nurses and doctors, what's really involved in going through the training processes, or size of classes or anything else. Promises are spating out. I loved a Matt cartoon the other day. He said, uh, one constituency has had a month's worth of pledges in a single day today. <laughs> Raining down. So we're no better, and yet it may be that for his sovereign purposes and understanding our times, that the Lord needs to detach us from something which is happening that only he fully understands and knows. And from that point of view, there may be something very powerfully of God in the cleaving and separating off. Yes, the remnant is an extremely powerful theme in Scripture. And, you know, one of the things that you so easily feel, particularly when you're dealing with these kind of massive, mega-scale things, is you feel, it's the language of Amos, Jacob saying, Amos 7, you know, I am so small, says Jacob, you know, what can I do to influence this? And the answer is that somehow or other the Lord takes our prayers into the courts of the Lord, into the council chambers of heaven, and finds a way to outwork them. He incorporates those prayers. And you're absolutely right in saying that he is stirring up more prayer amongst the churches, really, probably, than at any time since the Falklands War or before that, 
from the Second World War. So there has been a rousing up and a raising up of prayer groups that's absolutely necessary. And you're absolutely right that the Lord uses the remnant to do that. And uh, you see that beautifully fictionalised in the Frank Peretti novels, which often look like um, fictionalised facts rather than just pure fiction, when the angels come and, as it were, tap on certain people's, you've read them, haven't you, John? Uh, tap on certain people's hearts and say, pray for such and such. It's a, a real prompting that goes on. And the beautiful thing to remember when you feel like Jacob, I'm too small, and my contribution doesn't count, the beautiful thing to remember is that one plus God is the majority. And if it hadn't been for that, where would Elijah have been by the brook Kerith, faced by the might of Ahab and Jezebel? God's ways are so much higher than our ways. His yeah. thoughts so much higher than our thoughts. If we're in a situation, I keep coming through it. Wow, what is God doing? I don't know in many ways. You see, the great danger is always that a nation trusts in its own complacency because it's been saved and rescued in the past. The great problem that Israel had was that it had come to trust in the temple of the Lord rather than the Lord of the temple. And you can see that explained in Jeremiah chapter 7. But it's a really dangerous thing that a nation can get into. We were saved from the Spanish Armada. We were saved miraculously from Napoleon when he tried to set off, you know, with his fleet of barges and all the rest. We were saved from Hitler because intercessors were led to pray that inexplicably he would invade his ally, Russia. It was absolutely ludicrous, but it saved Britain. Sorry, Rob. You know... I found it very encouraging when you said that um, the European Union was formed by Christians. Oh, yes. Do you know why? Because if I look at the world, mm. I'm not British, so mm. I have to look at the world. Mm. And the world is full of Brexit, mm. uh, call it Italian Brexit, mm. call it Austrian Brexit. Yeah, yeah. Brexit. But there Next is, there is, the there is everybody yeah. wants to exit. Yeah. And the way I see it, if I were to think about the end time, is that I can see them closer now than ever before because there is massive hatred in the world about everyone and anyone. And the way I see it is that Christians will be persecuted. I do sense it, and maybe I'm wrong, but I sense that the Lord is calling us to be a bit more up there with our prayer life I'm talking about myself here mm. because maybe one day there will be a new not European, a new union where just the Christians about all the other nations will have to come together because they will all be persecuted in their own countries mm. just because they are Christian mm. and, and all I see is that the value of Christianity is falling apart not just in this country because in my country, it's terrible. Yeah. We've got Mussolini all yeah. again. Yeah. So, I know. I know. Um, and it's not a political message. I'm just no, saying no, that no, it no, seems no. it's deeper. No, it's absolutely clear what's happening in Italy. It's absolutely clear. And unfortunately, it's being replicated in many other countries with the Freedom Party in Austria, you know, with the rise of the far right in France. You know, we should be weeping for these things. You remember Jeremiah says, land, land, land. And he mourns, and it's right that we mourn. 
And you see, the great thing is that if the European Union had put Jesus at the centre and the biblical heritage that you referred to then, we would be dealing now with something completely different. And the huge desire to come out now that many countries have got, Germany is pretty finely balanced if you put it to the vote. You know, many countries are finely, France certainly is, many countries are finely balanced. But why? Not because they want to put God first, but because they want to put nationalism first. Mm. And raw, unabated nationalism is not of God. That's why specifically, I said earlier, very deliberately, Jesus did not go nationalistic towards Israel. In other words, he didn't see it through rose-coloured spectacles. Now, I've met many Christians who pray for Israel, who frankly are so pro-Israel that it's as though they've forgotten that Israelis actually need to come to know the Lord. They've muddied the secular and the spiritual, and they endorse everything that literal Israel does, forgetting that God holds to a higher standard his own people, he expects things that to be right. And if Jeremiah was around today, he would be denouncing many of the things that literal, secular Israel stands for and does today. He wouldn't be pulling his punches. And so this is absolutely vital, that God's heart is for truth, humility and justice. But we live in a post-truth era, post-truth, post-Christian era, and that is complex. And when we say is persecution coming, it's actually come. Look around the world, where do you see the church persecuted? China, North Korea. Massive number of countries. The number of people who've lost their lives under fundamentalist Islam and fundamentalist Hinduism is frightening the number of people. And their cry, as in Revelation 6, is before the Lord, how long will it be, Lord, before you show yourself mighty? And that is a bit of an interesting backward comment that in fact the longing that people have in heaven can express sorrow and turns into prayer in heaven. So the saints in heaven aren't just twanging hearts. They're not just worshipping, though they are. They're not just fellowshipping with each other, though they undoubtedly are. They're also reflecting the Lord's burden for the events on earth. And we don't lose our concern for the people we love when we die. We still have the continuity of praying. And that's why I said earlier that just observing doesn't picture the whole of it from chapter 12 and verse 1 of Hebrews 12. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It's an encouragement to shake off every weight that holds us back, to hasten the day of the Lord. And I love the fact that in Hebrew, the verb, Hebrew verb kush, means to hasten, yes, but also to enjoy to the full with the senses. And so the Lord is actually enjoying the sight of his people seeking him. And that is so important for the well-being of the world. Yeah, go for it again. Uh, when my father was in Israel, the Palestinians were the Jews. When I was living in there 35 years ago, there was just, I used to go to a Messianic fellowship in Jerusalem. I found out later it was the very first one that was started there, wow. down Rehov Nevi'im, Prophet Street. And um, there was just a liberated wailing wall, wasn't there? Yes, there we go. And um, the, there was just literally a handful of yes. Messianic yeah. uh, congregations, fellowships sure. up and down the country. 
there's now about 150. It's yes. growing exponentially. God is moving tremendously. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The secular side is doing some horrendous things, as is in this country. Um, but God is moving there incredibly. He's a lot of his belie- uh, Jewish people are turning to their Messiah, and there's some locally here. And we need to see very clearly that the prophecy which is given in um, Zechariah 12, that they will see the one they have pierced and mourn, that verse is taken up in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 and expanded to the whole world will see Jesus when they come again and recognise what we've done to the one that we've pierced. So what starts in Israel goes global. And if you think about where the epicentre of spiritual warfare has been through the history of the world, where do we come to? We come to Israel. Where do we come to in Israel? We come to Jerusalem. It is the focus point of the enemy's intention. Why? Because it's the place that Jesus will come back to. He never saw it through rose-coloured spectacle. He said, this is the place that kills the prophets. He fully recognised the defaults and the sin of Jerusalem, but he also knew it was the place from which the heavenly kingdom would operate and over which he would reign. And you read that lovely passage, a verse of scripture, which is to be found in, I think it's Isaiah chapter 2, but it's also in Micah. It's very unusual. It's a prophecy that's duplicated across different prophets about the house of the Lord being raised up. And it's the talking of Jesus demonstrating his kingdom on earth, which is a literal event. And it's so important in our understanding of scripture to know what is literal, what is poetic, what is figurative, what is a riddle, and in in the um, original language, a riddle means something sharp, which has to be teased out and understood. And so we understand what is literal, and it is literal that Jesus' feet will descend and stand on the Mount of Olives. And so that mountain that has such a great history in the past, its greatest history actually awaits it in the future. It's not an amazing thought. We just think of it as an average sort of hill, really. Nothing special to write home about, barely mentions the merit in the guidebook. God sees things differently, and that is how it will be at his judgment that he will see key moments in our life that we might not have regarded as the most important, not the moment when I got the biggest pay rise, but actually something I said or did that meant so much to the Lord for good or, oh heck, for bad. That's why we have to be alert and attentive and why Jesus was at such pains to say, keep awake, Vachetav, sleep us awake. We probably ought to be in danger of beginning to wind up now, otherwise it will be a question of sleepers awake. Is there any final points anyone wants to round off with, or shall we leave it? You did say um, the Lord's not nationalistic in connection yeah. with that earlier thing, yeah, yeah. but he loves the nations, doesn't he? He does. It's a concept that he... It is, a, it is a concept the Lord you know, is concerned with, you know, and it says very definitely, doesn't it, that he designated where each people group should live. That's very clear in the Acts of the Apostles. And each nation has its own redemptive gifting. And the enemy is always trying to use that against us. So a nation like Germany has a great sense of order and ability to rule in the right sense. So the enemy tries to get hold of it and twist it. I used to love spending time in Jersey and the great redemptive gift of Jersey is hospitality. They're good at it. It's their gifting. What are our giftings redemptively as individuals and as a nation? That would be a good thing to think about.
if you can get hold of a book called uh, Nations Called by Peter Boss. Peter spelled P-I-E-T-E-R and Boss is B-O-S-S. It's out of print, but it's very good. The Nations Called. Father, we've touched on many themes tonight. We've spanned the skies. You didn't call your people to scan the skies in an artless way, wondering if you're coming back tomorrow. You called us to be purposeful because everything you do is full of purpose. And one act and deed that you do intercepts down the road with another. It's just amazing how you do it, Lord. Thank you. May we be part of the purposes you have for raising us up in this generation. You are seeking, Father, a people for your own possession who are eager to do what is good. Titus 2, verse 14. While we wait for the blessed hope, Titus 2, 13. Father, we're waiting for you. And I pray that you'll fuel and fill us and equip us. You do want us to stand out for you. You have promised that those who do so will suffer for you. It's as inevitable as night follows day. But you also said, Lord, that you would be with us in trouble. And Father, you also promised that your covenant with Israel would no more fail than night would fail to follow day. So your promises stand the test of all time. And you are the Lord of time and the Redeemer of time, Kairos and Kronos time, your Lord of both. And you are coming again for your people. And we want to sing, Lord, as uh, millions have done through the years, when the saints come marching in, we want to be of that number. We don't want to miss out, Lord, through carelessness, through neglect. We pray for all Christians who've grown lukewarm, Lord, that there will be a warming that comes with your warning. Power encounter, Lord, a reminder, a tap on the shoulder. You're merciful in the way that you do it, Father, but the wake-up call has to come. And we pray that you'll continue to wake people up at this time. And we pray that you'll be Lord of what happens in this nation on December the 12th and in the days, weeks, months and years that follow on beyond that. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let more purposes evolve, Lord, that bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.